and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. We've got The Risk-Driven Business Model, four questions that will define your company. And I've got Karen Girotra and Sergey Natesin. Tough names, and you know how bad I am with names, but I think I managed that quite well today. So, Karen, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, and you did very well with the names. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, it's Monday morning. Let's just jump right in. I want to talk to you about risk-driven business model. You know, everybody knows what a business model is, and, and I think, uh, actually, let's back that up a bit. For you, what is a business model? Everybody has an idea what a business model is, but I think there's a lot of misconception. Right. No, you're very right. Business models have a lot of different interpretations. To me, the simplest way of thinking of a business model is the way you do things in a company. Mm. So uh, uh, any business has a product or a, or a service that it offers. It might have certain resources. How you bring those resources together to provision the product to your customers, product or service to your customers, is really the business model. So it's very simply how you do things. Where I think we depart from the conventional wisdom on business models in this book is really on the metrics of how we evaluate a business model. So, okay. So typically one might, might evaluate a business model in terms of costs, in terms of uh, revenues. Our, our uh, perspective is that you need to think of operational risk also when you really want to have a holistic description of the performance or some uh, metrics of your business model. This is the third kind of uh, leg that is often missing in in most uh, people's perception of a business model. That's where I think uh, this book really tries to focus on. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you say risk, and, and I've built a lot of uh, business plans and business models uh, in my day. And, you know, you don't, you kind of shy away from the risk. You've got this kind of like, oh, everything's going to be cool and we're going to make so much money. And, you know, you're kind of in this pie in the sky attitude. But, I mean, it's exciting. You're, you're building a new company and all that. I don't think a lot of people think about the risk and the competition and, and, and things that can go wrong. How critical is risk? No, that's a great question. Most of us think risk is something to be avoided, something really to either avoid it in a, in a, as a prudent business manager or as an entrepreneur uh, delusionally forgotten about. So mm-hmm. either, either uh, those are the typical um, uh, kind of perspectives to risk. Our, our, um, our view is a little more subtle. Our view is risk is, uh, is a metric of your business model. It, just the absolute amount having more or less is not the problem. The issue is how you address risk, how your business model uh, builds risk into it. And I think that um, once one gets that right, it doesn't matter if the risk exposure is high or low, as long as you've built your business model to, to truthfully acknowledge and know what it is. So I think the knowledge of this, looking at the risk is probably more important than just uh, trying to minimize or um, exceed the risk. And it goes further because I think risk comes in many flavors. The kind of risk once once uh, typically looks at in a business plan is the venture failure risk. Will this work? Will this not work? Uh, even in successful ventures, there's lots of risks. So uh, a big running company has a risk of uh, what its customers' tastes will be today, tomorrow. A restaurant has the risk of how many people walk in, what do they order? So there's lots of uh, different risks in the business. Knowing them and designing a model around them to best uh, best deal with them. And deal doesn't necessarily mean limit them, but to best uh, manage them 
that is, I think, where the uh, sweet spot lies in terms of thinking about risk. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like if you're aware of the risk and you prepare for it, you don't get sideswiped by it, and uh, you you know you don't have the right. resources ready to go. Right, right. And sometimes you might just take on other people's risk and and just charge them something for it, uh, like insurance companies do. Um, businesses can do it too. If you think of uh, a zip car, a zip car uh, gives you uh, hourly rentals rather than a uh, daily rental, which was the traditional model in this uh, in this industry. Now, in one sense, Zipcar is exposing itself to a lot more utilization risk uh, because if you rent for a day, you're going to they've sold the car for a day or rented the car out for a day. On the other end, if you're doing hourly basis, there's a good chance nobody will want it in the morning, evening, and and just the amount of uncertainty they have to face is probably more. But on an hourly basis, on a per hour basis, Zipcar charges you far more. Than a, than a traditional car rental company. So in, in this case, they're taking on the risk of their cars not being fully utilized during the day, whereas in the regular original business model, it was the customers who faced that risk. They took on the risk, but they actually got someone to pay for it. So it wasn't such a bad thing. In fact, their whole business model is really about taking on the risk from customers and, uh, and really uh, charging them a premium for it. You know, that sounds like an amazing new business model. And I guess, that you know, ironically, that's what your book's all about. Um, understanding risk and then how to uh, profit from the risk. Because if you know what the risk is and you have a plan to utilize the risk or pivot away from the problem, uh, you you have a much higher chance of being profitable. Is, is that one of the um, gems in the book? Yes, I'd, uh, I think it, it is definitely one of our main, uh, main learnings. Know the risk, learn to profit from it, exactly as you said. Now, let's talk, you know, you just said know the risk. My question here is like, how do you find risk? And that, you know, it's like, oh, come on, Bob, that's an easy question. But I think that is tantamount. You've got to understand what risk is and whether that risk fits the, the um, skill sets that you can bring to bear to make it less risky. Oh, you're completely right. So it, I think that is one of those things that, that is too simple to be asked, but is perhaps uh, extremely important. And, and there's so many layers to analyzing the risk correctly that very few companies, I think, and, and uh, startups and established companies do it correctly. So I think first, there's lots of different kind of risks in the business. Mm. Uh, venture failure risk, financial risk, your employees leaving you risk, all sorts of risks. But the two that we focus on in the book, that we provide systematic guidelines to how to identify them, and, and we do those, we pick those two because we think these are the most relevant ones from which you can profit, are, are an information risk and incentive alignment, misalignment risk or alignment risk. Mm. These are really to just give you a short description of those. Information risk is whenever you're making decisions without, not, without knowing what's going to happen next. You're like, like uh, Zipcar is buying cars without knowing how many people will rent on a particular day. They're uh, uh, allocating cars to different locations without knowing how, how those locations will come up in the next months. That's an information risk. And incentive alignment risk is often seen inside companies, sometimes between companies too. But inside companies, the com- most common example of an incentive uh, misalignment risk would be um, you and your employees. You are setting them up. Uh, you want them to work in the larger interest of the of the company, but they might be more focused on on whatever they're incentivized on, on making their sales target, making their uh, hitting their uh, bonus target, or or whatever metrics you've set them. So those are the two kind of uh, risks that uh, that we think 
are, are perhaps one of the best opportunities to turn your business model around. Information risk, lack of knowing what's coming next, and, uh, and the risk exposure due to actions of other people who might be incentivized very differently than you might be, be it employees, be it suppliers, sometimes even customers. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the, the four questions that you have, because this is the backbone of your book. You've got the what strategy, the when strategy, the who strategy, and the why strategy. Do you have to tackle it in that order, as, but once, or have when you've read the book, can you say, you know what, we're in the when strategy stage. Let's dig into that. So I think uh, it works either ways. We can mm. uh, we do think it is helpful for a company starting out to follow the what, when, who, why order. Mm. But uh, but this is see, Bob. This is about innovation. Uh, while the goal of the book is to put some templates, some uh, some uh, principles around uh, what is inherently a fairly artistic, creative process of thinking of how you can turn your business model around. The goal is to put some recipe to it, but there's only that far you can go. Every business's situation will be unique. Every person will think differently about this. We've run this model with uh, many big companies, lots of startups, and uh, we've seen all types. We do think these, this is a recommended sequence, but, uh, but if one of your readers uh, goes off it, I don't think it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's often a good thing. The goal is to really, um, we think of these methods as, as just uh, opportunities to stimulate or ways to stimulate your thinking about how to change your business or your industry. Mm. These are uh, these are kind of ways to shock you into thinking about the right things to start uh, start this generation process, and beyond that, to each his own. If it works in a different sequence for you, I think that's uh, that's completely fine. Hmm. Well, and that, that that's a nice segue for my next question, which I always ask: is what's the best way to tackle the book? Should you uh, read the whole book through from page one all the way through to? page 240 uh or should you uh can you jump around in it and still get the value right no that's a great question we tried to write the book uh, knowing the demands on on today's business managers to be somewhat modular so one can indeed uh, jump around a little bit here is here is what i would recommend i think reading the first couple of paragraphs a couple of chapters one and two is probably um, uh, is quite important to get going to understand what we're talking about uh, but between these four backbone chapters, what, when, who, why, I think uh, what I recommend folks to do is uh, read, the, read the first two introductory chapters, read the what chapter, and then take a pause. And then really think about, okay, what did you learn? How can you apply what to your business? Perhaps give it a week. Then come back and, and read the next chapter, when. Again, give it a week to think about all, all that you could do in terms of when. Typically, we find when takes a little bit longer than what. Then comes uh, who and why. And I think each one of these it's good to read them and let then give yourself a week, 10 days to really let the ideas sink in. And, and during those 10 days, you don't want to be a passive, uh, okay, I read the book, I forgot about it. During that week, the goal is to really uh, take each of those principles and, and dedicate it to your business one day. So each of these chapters typically is divided into three sections. Um, look at um, during the week between two chapters. Take some time to um, really apply each of those techniques. Just, okay, how can this apply to this part of my business, that part of my business, and so on and so forth. So it really is um, like a checklist you can go through one by one. Okay, does this work for me? Does this work for me? And, and uh, I'm very confident if your readers actually follow it systematically through, uh, each, each of your readers, it's never failed me, will have at least one quite disruptive idea about how to change their business model. Typically more than that. So if you go through these four chapters in four weeks, 
that's my um, uh, i'm pretty confident each one would would have something and if it doesn't i'm happy to work with them to help them find something because <laughs> for now it is not, as as of now i have not found anyone who has uh, failed in being able to think about um, uh, those things hmm. um in here also you talk about uh the business model audit and i think and we kind of talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the interview but really, let's dig down a little bit about how do you do an audit like that? How can you step away from your company and look at it in a perspective where it's okay to, to, to look at it uh, very, very uh, on a critique level? Right. So, uh, Bob, we kind of do that already in terms of other audits. Mm-hmm. The reason we, we use the word audit is to bring a little bit uh, the kind of discipline that exists with uh, financial audits. Mm. We typically do uh, very critically look at our cost. Most businesses will have some cost accounting uh, processes in there. We do look at our sales fairly uh, uh, critically too. Uh, The business model audit is about critically looking at these information and incentive risks that you were talking about earlier. So it really is about, it's not, uh, these things are hard to often pin down in numbers. So it's not like traditional accounting. But, but it is um, in the same way as we critically look at our uh, revenues at the end of the week or end of the month, uh, one should look at also their, uh, their risk exposures, particularly what did I do this week, which, uh, which was just based on a guess on what's going to happen in the future. And, and in some cases, finding out, looking back, how did it turn out? Was the exposure, because if, if I had known something at uh, a week earlier, how would I have done things differently? Mm. And if, if you would have th- done things very differently, that means you had a very different information risk. The same, same uh, applies to alignment risks. What if I could control the actions of everyone who matters to my business? Consumers, um, uh, uh, suppliers, employees. If they were not independent agents, if they were not, they didn't have agency, I really could control everyone. How would have things been different this week? If that different thing if your dream scenario or this kind of all-controlling, omniscient, omnipotent scenario is very different from the reality, then you know you have uh, one of those risks is really, really big in your business. And we go deeper in the book. We provide uh, more more systematic ways of being able to nail these two down. Hmm. Now, you know, um, you obviously have got uh, some pretty serious business experience behind you and you're putting this book together and you, you're basically taking all your knowledge and information and, and putting it down on paper. And, and I wanted to ask you, what was your aha moment? What was something that you already knew was true, but when you wrote the book became super crystal clear and became a, a, a pure reality for you? That's a, that's a great question. So to me, I think, uh, so this book really came about uh, not with the intention of writing a book. We were, we were academics. We were doing this research for a few years, looking at a lot of these um, uh, different companies um, writing the book really was putting all these examples together in a framework and in actionable things. Things we knew we had in practice done it, but to formalize it so that it was uh, not, didn't require me to be in the room to help you do it. So that was, I think, the process of writing the book. But, but this framework was based on everything we had seen in the past. It was based on successes of other businesses we had seen. Then once we started formalizing it, first in the classroom, first in really, or, or more um, our classroom in me being the executive classroom often with, with companies and others, senior management. And, and so once we started, uh, we formalized this framework, created this recipe, took it to people we were working with. The big aha for me was, 
that this framework worked not just uh, retroactively in explaining the success of a lot of things. There's a lot of frameworks which explain things, explain why things worked in the past. What I found uh, particularly uh, what really motivated me to write the book and do this was that going forward, when we would present this framework to people, just by having, having the framework in front of them, their innovation abilities expanded so much, in particular in the context of business model innovation. So the big aha was that the framework doesn't just explain what would happen in the past, but can also be used to predict what to do next, can be used to predict what, what, where you go forward in that. Mm. And I think that to me was, uh, uh, that, that convinced me, and I'm a hard, hard person to convince to, to go do any task for a long period of time. That convinced me that this uh, is something uh, we should commit to bringing the ideas forward uh, in, in, in other places because they could be impactful, which is how then finally we um, packaged the book and, and, uh, and the rest has been uh, the process of writing the book and, and formally int- uh, launching it. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff inside the book. You've got these uh, small sections. Well, it, the, the, I like the way the book's uh, laid out because you've got these nice little sections in it. But you also have these great case studies. And you know, here's one is how Amazon keeps changing who uh, of its business models. So you're basically taking that chapters, uh, you know, there's the who and then there's the what. And you're actually doing a really nice um, story or, or analysis. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what Amazon's been doing? Right. So Amazon's a fascinating example because over the last uh, 15 years, first, it's one of the few companies of the, I might say, one might say, the class of, uh, the first, uh, first class of web companies to, to still be surviving, mm-hmm. thriving. Uh, if you look at all the competitors of uh, Amazon at that time, they're not around. But, but what is interesting is Amazon hasn't survived in the same fashion. They've had uh, enough twists and turns in their uh, business model over the last 15 years to, to put any uh, uh, a Hollywood thriller to, to shame, just the number <laughs> of times things change. So uh, Amazon started out as, as a store which was main offering was that you go to a local bookstore, you get X number of books. At Amazon, you can find everything. You can find every kind of book, not everything. At that time, uh, a much wider assortment. Now, that, that creates an obvious uh, challenge. If you are promising to offer, why, why can't local stores offer all the, uh, all the wide variety? Because it costs them money to stock all those books, to have the inventory. Now, if Amazon was going to do it for a much larger number of books, as a startup with not much money to go around, how would they pull this off? Amazon was very clever. They changed who actually carries books in the business model. Amazon put this great website up, but they did not stock a single book. They called it virtual fulfillment. What it meant was that all the books were still sitting at the, at the distributors. It's only when you placed it in order, they would, they would send that information to a distributor who would directly ship it to you. Now, uh, from a distributor's point of view, first, Amazon doesn't take on any risk. But even better, when a distributor holds a book, it is less risky to be held rather than when a, a, a store holds it. For a simple reason, the distributor can send it to many other stores. If it doesn't sell on Amazon, it can sell on your local bookstore or wherever it sells. So this this kind of being on the internet, having a little bit delay between the purchase and the actual fulfillment, gave them this ability to change who actually stocks the books. That's how Amazon started. But then Amazon became a lot bigger. 
So from being this small company, which was offering a huge selection, now they became far bigger than sometimes even the distributors. So uh, much bigger than, than many of the distributors. Then they turned things around. And as they were expanding to other categories, not just books, um, they turned things around and they said, you know what? Even if the book is for every retail store, a physical store, um, other online stores, for everyone, rather than the distributors holding inventory, we'll become the mega distributor. We will fulfill orders which come in at Amazon.com, come in at ToysRUs.com, or a lot of different properties. So they became the, they completely reversed track in this sense. And they became the, the player who was holding all the inventory. And this time, again, it made sense. Because now, like I said earlier, the distributor was big enough that it could have gone any place. Now when Amazon is big enough, it is actually more sensible for them to be taking on this uh, this issue of who has the books or not. Because if it doesn't sell on Amazon, it can sell on Toys R Us or some other place. Or if it was a uh, a physical product, which which I think increasingly started happening. So Amazon changed who was really holding the books. And if you look at the history of Amazon, there are multiple other twists. This was just with who they've twisted when things happen. They've gone from being a, um, a retailer to a platform provider for logistics. Uh, more uh, recently, a platform provider for IT services. And even more recently, again, now they move into uh, digital content, which again eliminates the whole issue of uh, this inventory uh, for an ebook or a, a digitally delivered uh, piece of content, uh, music, etc. All of these inventory issues go away, but, but other issues of creating platforms, creating a fair marketplace for both uh, content producers and uh, consumers. Um, uh, prop up, and that's I think what Amazon is uh, is creating the business model uh, right now for right or wrong. Uh, it depends a little bit on where you sit and and how things will play out in the future. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it is a fascinating com- uh, company. You know, it's so big, it's so powerful, and the, the things they're able to do. I mean, they're getting into creating content. They're they're doing TV series now, and what, right. a very interesting thing about this year is they did a bunch of pilots, and then they asked their uh, their audience, their consumers, to say which ones do they want us to continue to develop. So they didn't right. even use the Hollywood uh, approach. Just oh, we're just going to make it, or the, like the networks, we're going to make this video and just cram it down. Uh, right. Or, and they've actually asked their people which yep, one that's a clear example of the when approach mm. so this has been happening in multiple industries multiple creative industries um so i think youtube i like as the as the person who started this trend that we let the crowd tell us what goes over uh, what works or not mm. wikipedia is on the same thing in terms of information content knowledge content uh, but another uh, uh, example which fits in exactly into what you're saying is Kickstarter. Mm. So uh, uh, 20 years back, if you had to make a product or even five years back, you were an inventor, you came up with a product, you'd probably have to put in quite a bit of money into it um, before before you create a prototype, etc. And then you might uh, either try selling it yourself or go to a QVC or something and see if it uh, catches on or not. I'm talking of novelty items mm. and now today you don't need to and you had a huge information risk you had sunk in six months of your life probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars before you got the first prototypes out there today you don't spend a penny or you spend a much much smaller amount of money you create a nice video you create a description perhaps a fairly rudimentary prototype which cannot be manufactured and you post a video on kickstarter even before you sink in any money it's the consumers the audience that really pre-commits to buying it if you think what happens on Kickstarter, often it's called crowdfunding. But for physical products, it typically is an advanced purchase, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. You, you pay up money and then you get a slightly discounted or a limited edition version of that, um, of that item. 
Uh, and so what, what uh, the developer on the other hand is doing is using this advanced purchase as a way of collecting advanced information on if this will work or not. And only if he gets it's going to work or not, does he sink in those couple of hundred thousand dollars to really make it happen. Many times um, uh, yeah, developers will sink in more than the money they collected from advanced sales because now they're much more confident that this is going to work. So this is really about getting information early exactly as uh, uh, Amazon is trying to do with content. Netflix has tried some experiments like that. Um, others uh, in, in uh, YouTube, uh, Wikipedia, all of this is really about uh, changing when decisions are made. Now, uh, really, in, in terms of uh, perspective of information, you're making decisions after you got this information by creating um, uh, these kind of uh, systems. Other in physical products, folks have created voting systems, like a little bit like Threadless um, has, has on, on, on fashion and, and design, which is, remains another category exposed to a lot of information risk because we just don't know what trends get hot. So indeed, that's, I think, a great example and helps us uh, think of how, how changing when decisions also helps. Well, you know, that, that I just had a, a little epiphany here is like, you know, tech risk, technology risk. These days, the risk isn't about utilizing technology, but it's your C-suite not being aware that technology uh, that technology is available and it's not a risk anymore. It's like, nah, we don't try it, it's new. Ah, no, that sounds a little risky. These days, it's if you don't have guys that are running the company saying, you know, that sounds like an innovative way, a new way of doing stuff, we should try it out. Do you think that's a problem that the larger, more established companies have? Definitely. I think the, the biggest enemy of, of business model innovation, which we've been talking about for a while, is uh, I find two enemies. One, there is not a structured process of doing it, mm. which is something which we hope to address using the book. We do try to put a structured process. But the other enemy, sometimes bigger enemy, is really uh, the existing business model. Mm. Uh, an existing business model in a, in a relatively bigger company, um, uh, even at a, at a scale of 100 employees or so, you start getting constituencies who are very vested in the model. See, when, when an Apple comes up with a new product, no one at Apple really is, is job role is going to change too much or they're going to lose their jobs because Apple has moved into a different iPhone generation. And, but on the other hand, when you change a business model, when you change from selling, say, uh, car rentals on a daily basis to automated car rentals on an hourly basis, suddenly the organization, people will lose their jobs. Or when IBM moved from selling products to services, a different business model. Folks who were, uh, who were uh, politically important in the existing business model had quite a bit to lose. So that does end up being one of the biggest enemies of business model innovation. But my response to that is, is very simple. It is far better to disrupt yourself. It is far better for you to uh, challenge your existing business model than for a competitor to do that. In today's world, with easy access to capital for startups, with um, uh, much cheaper to start a company, it is um, uh, you're only you're placing a huge risk if you're relying on uh, on hoping for uh, if you're waiting for someone else to disrupt yourself. So the C-suite needs to think of how they can disrupt themselves rather than waiting for um, uh, an outsider to come do this. And and we do provide some techniques in the book to really make it happen. Um, create a separate uh, uh, skunk works or separate kind of uh, division or group of people who are empowered to start doing things differently in the company. Do not bring them into the political um, decision-making process within the company. Another thing we find very effective to fight this enemy of, uh, of the existing business model 
um, which has many, many apologists and, and supporters for it, is often to not try to change the business model in one go. One, one great thing about, about all these business model innovations we've talked about, they lend themselves, they make it very easy to test parts of it one by one. Mm. So for instance, you don't need to do change. The, a Hollywood studio doesn't need to change their uh, talent scout, uh, empowered uh, p- p- producer model where, where someone picks what is going to be on or not. You can do a different model for a couple of shows, for perhaps your uh, non-prime time things to start with. You can do it in a, in a market that might not be your biggest market. You can start small, look for the data to come in and adapt. Unlike, which is very hard to do with uh, physical product innovations. So, um, so I think you're very right. The internal challenge is the biggest challenge, is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, the way to deal with it is, is uh, separating decision-making um, from the hands of people who have a lot vested in the existing model, either by creating small entrepreneurial groups and, and also uh, doing it much more, uh, doing it gradually, getting data, and using that data to win over all the apologists. Because uh, once you have a real-life uh, example where the performance is X times better or X percent better, it's harder to argue through um, uh, self-centered political arguments. Mm-hmm. We start. Okay, so, you know, you. Um, I wanted to, to, to go back a little bit, you know, for people that aren't that uh, familiar with uh, more high-end business structure and, and things like that, you did use Skunk, and that's an acronym, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, Skunkworks, uh, I'm not 100% sure where the name comes from, but Skunkworks is, uh, from what I know, the story is, it's like a skunk, you take a group of people and you isolate them from the organization. If you had a skunk in your office, you'd isolate it because it <laughs> smells. I think that's where it comes from. That it's a group of people that you um, uh, isolate from uh, from the existing structures. So uh, Facebook famously would would have uh, uh, would rent a, a separate office space, a tent uh, in the sometimes a separate office building. Sometimes they would put a tent in their parking where a group of people were working without. Uh, without much political interactions or without the usual rules. I think it doesn't have to be a physical separation. Often it's a organizational control separation. Mm. So you take um, uh, three young, excited people, give them some freedom to try something as if they were working in a startup. That's the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Run an internal startup, which has, um, you don't need to give it too much resources, but you do need to give it uh, a little more authority than the regular bureaucracy would, would afford. So uh, it's just isolation from what I understand. Um, there might be more, more uh, kind of history on where it comes from. But to me, I just think of it as a skunk. You keep it a little bit away from the organization. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds a lot uh, also like what Google does with the 20% rule where you're allowed to take 20% of your work time allotment and work on personal projects. Right. Now, that's, a, that's another example. We talk about it in the book. And, and this one is about, um, the fa- fascinating thing is, like you said, they give employees one day a week, 20% of the time to do whatever they want. Mm. That's great. But what really works out well is from that 20% of the time, 50% of Google's new products were created when Google was doing it. Hmm. Now, Google has had uh, challenges uh, since then, uh, mostly control challenges. So they've moved uh, a little bit away from the model. But during the time this model was, was run, it worked beautifully in terms of, of increasing people's productivity. And I, I was fascinated by it. I, I tried looking at it quite carefully on why it helped. Mm. And, and there were a lot of theories I started with. It would, could be just because um, 
Uh, it helped because these are uh, very motivated people. It empowers them. And, and those were in there. But to me, what, what after interviewing quite a few engineers who were, uh, uh, who were part of this program, what really struck me was, and what I think uh, really explains the success of this program, was about matching the right people for the right projects. Because what, what was going on was interesting. So one would have thought, oh, you're giving them a day off and people are, are going to while their time away. But they didn't. Uh, the first explanation might have been, oh, these are just guys who like working or guys and girls who like working mm. on, on uh, creative things. But that wasn't it. What it really was, they always liked working on things. That was correct. But most of the time, their manager had no clue what they liked working on or what they were capable of doing best. Mm. So their manager would assign them. So you had uh, no interest in finance, but you might be in the Google finance team. And suddenly you're trying to think of how to make uh, uh, information uh, better presented for finance professionals. It's, it becomes a job. When it became something you could do, everybody could think of, okay, I like seeing a lot of movies. Let me create uh, this feature into Google uh, search that gives me movie times immediately. Or I like seeing, uh, um, I like reading a lot of news. Let's create Google News, which makes it um, far more digestible. Uh, so it worked, uh, worked fabulously for Google. Now, for this and many other reasons, perhaps many other uh, things that were going on at Google around 2008-2010 uh, led to Google having too wide uh, a bureaucratic organization. Uh, so I think it became harder to run when it was uh, a really, really uh, big organization. But for the time uh, that it worked, it worked beautifully. For the time when it was right for Google, it worked uh, quite well. And, and this is an example of changing who makes decisions. If it's your manager who makes a decision on what is a good uh, thing for you to for you to do, almost uh, certainly that manager has poorer information on what is uh, what you can do well and what you really want to do, what you're passionate about, mm -hmm. and and that leads to this mismatch. To be sure, the manager does know a little bit better about what the company needs, uh, which is why you won't do it all five days of a week, um, because you do want to have some uh, strategic uh, clarity in the company. But you would uh, do it for a little bit because uh, at least on that one day, you're getting people to, um, to do things uh, which they are best uh, capable of and, and most motivated to do. Hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of what happened in China when the, they said, well, you know, um, we've got this food for you, you can go buy it, but we also you're allowed to have a little plot in the backyard and you can grow whatever food you want. And they found out after a while 70% of the, the produce was being grown in those backyards and people weren't having to rely on the government to provide a lot of those foods. So, yeah, I think if you have people that are self-motivated and have complete autonomy and power over a personal project, uh, the passion will drive them and you'll get them working incredibly efficiently compared to uh, team-based uh, efficiency. Particularly these kind of, uh, these kind of creative tasks. Mm. So I think a good rule for creativity is uh, incentives don't help. It's almost, uh, almost counterproductive or financial incentives often don't make people creative. In a great series of experiments done on uh, uh, kindergarten uh, children, um, uh, they asked them to draw draw something, uh, interpretation of a, of a landscape. And, and uh, uh, in one control condition, uh, they were asked to draw without any, any, anything else said on that. And in the other uh, condition, um, uh, the teacher set up a prize for whoever comes up with the most beautiful drawing. Mm. Turned out that there was so much more conformism, so much more uh, less creativity once you put that prize in. 
So on the other end, when people were mostly proud of their work, not for an external motivation, just for doing something good and showing it to their classmates, they produced far more creative, far more different interpretations of what was going on in the landscape than when it became about winning the prize that the teacher uh, announced. Then they were all interpreting the same thing to, uh, to, to win the... Uh, they were really trying to guess what the teacher was, uh, wanted them to do rather than what they wanted to do. Mm. And I think that's, um, that's a very good rule in creativity. Internal motivation goes far farther on any creative task than, um, than an external motivation often. Hmm. Um, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about the risk warning signs because I think that's critically important is, is what to look for um, in the book. You're basically saying that uh, some clear indications of the damage, not information, and incentive alignment risk can inflict. And then you, you have a bunch of points here. Uh, wide, uh, wide variations in year-to-year performance, failure to adopt technology, all these type of risks. How critical is it for, for somebody to be aware of the vocabulary of risk and how broad it is as far as the concept of the word risk in understanding um, how this book works? That's a great question. From my point of view, I think uh, it's almost better if our readers do not have a have a, a too deep an understanding of risk. Mm. And the reason for that is because often um, our perceptions of risk are, are very different than the kind of risk we're talking about in the book. Uh, the risk we're talking about is not the risk of losing your business. It's not the risk of uh, losing your financial investment. It's a broader definition. It's a day-to-day exposure to uncertainty out of actions of others, out of uh, things just, just that happen in the world. And so almost being unaware of, uh, of uh, having a preconceived notion about what risk is gives you a much cleaner slate to be able to uh, correctly examine the risks in your business. And um, we give this whole list of about 20 or so risk warning signs that if we go through them, we will be able to uh, see how these relate to uh, relate to uh, those risks in the business. Mm. Uh, but to me, I think the way I think about all of those those 20 signs could be summarized in, in two, two things. Uh, I, I think of it, think of your business and think of its current performance and compare that to the performance of the business under a situation where you had all the information before you were making decisions and you had the ability to control everyone else hmm. uh, without, without any um, ascribing any um, ideology to it. I like calling it the God profit. If you were omnipotent, omni, omniscient, you, you could control what everyone would do and you knew everything that you needed to know. With those, uh, and now you have this God profit versus what you really are making. If the difference between the two is very high, that tells you that you have a lot of the kind of risk we are talking about in the business. If it is the part about knowing everything that, that matters to your business that really takes you from the current profit to the high profit, then it really is information risk. On the other hand, if it is about uh, you being able to control partners, if only I could get my employees to do X instead of Y, my profit would have been up 20%. Mm. That, that means you're exposed to a lot of alignment risk. That means if you change how you compensate them, how you change their uh, incentives, typically around changing who's making decisions or why those decisions are being made the way they're being made, you might be able to gain quite a bit. So, so I think it's helpful to not really have any preconceived notions of books of, of risk. I think we don't need almost uh, no prior background is needed to uh, about risk or finance or numbers 
to appreciate, I think, what we're saying. And, and what I find often is that once readers start thinking about, oh, if I had information, if I had, could control others, this really applies to many aspects of one's life. And so uh, most of our readers find their own uh, stories to best explain it to them. Uh, and I think the concepts are fairly intuitive that anyone with, a, uh, with some experience in business will be able to apply them to their, uh, to their business. Uh, and in fact, I think um, for in understanding the concepts, even experience in business is not necessary. It is perhaps to apply the concepts to your industry, you probably need to know something about your industry. But to understand the concepts itself... Um, I think there's very little prior uh, knowledge necessary of any any sort to make this happen. Hmm. Um, where can people go to learn more about the book and uh, more reading on this particular subject? Right. So uh, first, uh, the book is available in, in different bookstores online and, and in physical bookstores. Uh, we have a book website called defineyourcompany.com. Uh, on it, we man- maintain a, a small blog where we regularly post things, new stories, new examples. Uh, on, on top of that, I think more frequently, I've, I'm trying to use um, uh, Twitter to share uh, shorter form uh, stories, uh, interesting reads. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Girotra K. That goes with G-I-R-O-T-R-A and K for current with my first name, Girotra K. And um, so that's that's how we uh, we like to engage with our readers, really give them new stories, and most importantly, also hear new stories. So our business model, in terms of writing this book or or what we do, really is is not just us giving this information out, but a lot of it is is collecting new information to enhance our stories, to perhaps um, create more stories of, of this. Most of the um, examples featured in the in the current uh, book actually have come to us from uh, folks we interacted with in the classroom, uh, in working with senior management. So we really look forward to hearing from uh, your readers uh, connecting with us and telling us more about uh, their experiences in applying uh, the concepts from the book. That's awesome. The Risk-Driven Business Model, four questions that will define your company. And after this interview, I totally believe that. Karen, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a great chat. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week. 